1: Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show.
0: It is extremely bizarre and unsettling to think about the fact that we are currently living through one of the most dangerous times in human history. And the fact that we're witnessing a historical event in and of itself is pretty scary but to make matters worse we're all utterly powerless in this situation the fate of all of humanity will largely be determined by a few world leaders and one madman whose behavior defies all reason and logic and just yesterday president vladimir putin of russia ordered his military to put nuclear forces on high alert and some are arguing that this isn't necessarily cause for alarm because this is nothing more than a strategic calculation and maybe that's true but nevertheless He has the capability of ending all life on Earth unilaterally, and he's reminding everyone that he does indeed have this power, a power that no human being should have, regardless of how logical or illogical they may very well be. So because we're all human beings and it's only natural to think about this, the obvious question is, how is this going to end? Is this actually going to end in World War III or nuclear warfare, where we all witness the annihilation of all of humanity. And I want to take some time to actually explore that. You might think that it's overly cynical and doomer, but we're all thinking it, and I think that pretending as if it's not a possibility isn't healthy. You know, we're all experiencing this together, so I think it's important that we talk through the implications of Putin's threats. Now, first and foremost, The Biden administration was asked this very question, should we all fear nuclear war? Should Americans fear nuclear war or a direct confrontation with Russia? So we'll talk about that latter question, but here's how the Biden administration responded when they were asked if we should be fearful of the prospect of nuclear war. As Brett Samuels of The Hill explains, President Biden said Monday he does not believe Americans have reason to be concerned about nuclear war amid tensions with Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Biden responded to the question with a short no after delivering remarks at a Black History Month event at the White House. The Biden administration has largely responded by avoiding further inflaming tensions, calling Putin's action an attempt to justify further aggression. It did not put its nuclear forces on higher alert in response. Now, Biden is right. I agree with him, at least philosophically, because there's nothing that we can do about this. Worrying or not worrying isn't going to change the outcome of this situation, so there's no sense in fearing nuclear war, because whether it happens or doesn't happen, we can't control it. So, you're not a bad person if you tune out the news cycle and you try to distract yourself from the stress. Remember, our grandparents and parents lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis and this same phenomenon, a similar phenomenon. My mom told me about how when she was growing up in Hawaii, they had nuclear drills, where at school she had to hide under her desk, uh, you know, in preparation for war just to kind of get themselves into the mentality of what you do, where you take shelter in the event there is this nuclear confrontation with Russia. So, This is something that is very, very stressful. So you're not a bad person if you tune out and try to distract yourself with movies or video games. I think that that is the logical, psychological response. We have to protect ourselves mentally so that way, if we do get through this event, we're healthier as a result. So you're not a bad person to distract yourself. And one thing that you can take comfort knowing is that I think that the Biden administration, up until this point, has been fairly rational, and they are very clearly trying to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia. Now, there's been talks of a Ukrainian no-fly zone imposed by the United States. This is something that some war hawks have been pushing, and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about this, and her response actually made me feel a little bit better, because it's clear that they're trying to only respond insofar as they deter further Russian aggression with sanctions economically, but they don't want a direct confrontation with Russia because that would be World War III. Here's what she said.
2: Well, here's what's important for everybody to know about a no-fly zone. What that would require is implementation by the U.S. military. It would essentially mean the U.S. military would be shooting down planes, Russian planes. That is definitely escalatory. That would potentially put us into a place where we're in a a military conflict with Russia. That is not something the president wants to do. So that's a no on that. that. Those are all the reasons why that's not a good idea.
0: So I actually do find that reassuring. You know if this were a different administration the trump's administration i'd have no way of knowing what he'd be doing if hillary clinton were in charge she advocated for a syrian no-fly zone which would lead to direct confrontation with russia so you know I, i'm i'm thankful that biden's administration at least now in this moment is seemingly trying to avoid a direct confrontation with russia but not all, not all actors are behaving in the same manner. So Belarus has renounced its non-nuclear position and will indeed be allowing Russia to place nukes its country and as derek johnson puts it i need you to hear me when i say that even after several difficult years full of bad news belarus inviting nuclear weapons onto its territory is the most alarming thing i've seen in my entire professional career the world is racing toward the cliff with no off-ramp in sight so suffice to say i don't necessarily believe that you can use the rational actor model to describe putin's behavior because there's reason to believe he's not a rational actor because invading ukraine in the first place was not in his interest, whatever he believes he's going to get out of this. I mean, this damaged the Russian economy. It turned the world against Vladimir Putin. It turned large portions of the Russian population against him as they take to the streets to denounce war. It turned Zelensky into an international hero and single-handedly justified the existence of NATO for the foreseeable future. And now countries like Finland and Sweden have been driven into the arms of NATO and they're considering joining because they're fearful of Vladimir Putin. So what he expected, well, it had the opposite effect. And to make matters worse, he's reportedly frustrated that Ukraine is competently resisting Russian aggression across the country. So if Putin were a rational actor, one would logically deduce that invading Ukraine would be out of the question because of the high price that he'd be paying and his country would be paying. But he did it anyway. It's a move that defies logic and reason. So it's not absurd to think, well, if he did that, would he do something even far more unthinkable and actually result to nuclear warfare? And that's something that I think is worth considering because if he gets incredibly frustrated and he kind of feels iced out and he's backed into a corner, is this going to make it more likely that he would take down the whole world with him? It's hard to say. So what I decided to do was look up what people who have been studying Russian politics and Vladimir Putin and, you know, geopolitical issues in this area for decades had to say about this. The experts who know more than all of us. And for the most part, the experts don't actually believe that Vladimir Putin's threats of nuclear war are legitimate. They think that this is all nothing more than strategy. But not all of them agree with that premise. So Financial Times states that the West is taking Putin's nuclear weapons threat seriously. However, quote, Matthew Kronig, a nuclear expert at the Atlantic Council, said Putin's response on Sunday was textbook Russian strategy. Quote, This really is Russia's military strategy to backstop conventional aggression with nuclear threats, or what is known as the escalate to de-escalate strategy. The message to the West, NATO, and U.S. is don't get involved or we can escalate things to the highest level, Kronig said, adding that he thought Putin was bluffing. Vice spoke with several experts and here's what they say. Quote, The overall thing is that some nuclear weapons are always Kept on alert. Emma Claire Foley, a senior associate in policy and research at Global Zero, a nonprofit that seeks the elimination of nuclear weapons, told Vice News. She said that both the United States and Russia have intercontinental ballistic missiles that are always ready to launch. That threat is constant, and there's a very short decision time for whether that kind of attack will be launched. Beatrice Finn, the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, says, We've seen with Putin now that this is not a weapon they use to protect their own country. It's a weapon they use to be able to do whatever they want to other countries. Deterrence isn't used to protect the country. Deterrence is used to be like, I will do whatever I want with Ukraine, and you are just going to be able to watch. The fact that he announced it is kind of sad, Jeffrey Lewis, a professor of Middlebury Institute of International Studies and a nuclear weapons expert, told Vice News, quote, Putin is trying to project power and intimidation. This isn't so different from Richard Nixon's madman alert in 1973, although Nixon didn't announce it. The Soviets shrugged at Nixon's gambit we should shrug at putin's too lewis is painfully aware that nuclear weapons are also pointed at russia while yes putin could kill millions of other people he's not stupid he also knows that the united states united kingdom and france also possess nuclear arsenals this is what deterrence looks like lewis said now vox also spoke with several experts who echoed basically the same sentiment matthew Bunn, a professor at the harvard kennedy school and former advisor to president bill clinton's office of science and technology policy initially told vox i think There is virtually no chance nuclear weapons are going to be used in the Ukraine situation. The main reason, Bunn said, is that the United States and its NATO allies have made it clear that they will not send troops to Ukraine without the threat of military intervention. Putin has little reason to use his nuclear weapons, especially since Russia has a staggering numbers advantage over the Ukrainian military. Paul Hare, senior lecturer in global studies at Boston University, argued that Putin's real goal is to swallow Ukraine and restore the historical power of Imperial Russia. His objective is not to bring the world to nuclear war," Harris said. However, Political magazine spoke with Fiona Hill. She's served in Democratic and Republican administrations because of her knowledge on Putin and Russia. And she's a lot less optimistic. There's lots of danger ahead, she warned. Putin is increasingly operating emotionally and likely to use all the weapons at his disposal, including nuclear ones. It's important not to have any illusions, but equally important not to lose hope. Every time you think, no, he wouldn't, would he? Well, yes, he would, Hill said. And he wants us to know that, of course. It's not that we should be intimidated and scared. We have to prepare for those contingencies and figure out what it is that we're going to do to head them off. So we've heard from multiple experts, and for the most part, they are in agreement that this will not lead to nuclear war. So even if Vladimir Putin is irrational and he's not really acting as rational actors in theory should behave, the question isn't whether or not he's rational. The question is whether or not he's suicidal. And that's what makes the threat of nuclear warfare a little bit different. Because if he were to use nuclear weapons, that would also ensure his demise as well. And this is really the idea behind MAD, mutually assured destruction. And I think that Wikipedia's explanation of this is, is perfectly sufficient. They write, Mutual assured destruction is a doctrine of military strategy and national security policy in which a full-scale use of nuclear weapons by two or more opposing sides would cause the complete annihilation of both the attacker and the defender. It is based on the theory of deterrence, which holds that the threat of using strong weapons against the enemy prevents the enemy's use of those same weapons. Now, regardless if you subscribe to this philosophy or not, I will maintain that it is not necessary for us to worry at this moment because again there's nothing we can do and there's no sense in getting stressed out over something that you have no control over so experts are saying they don't necessarily believe that this will lead to nuclear war because they don't believe that putin is suicidal per se so i don't think that there's a reason to be fearful but it's it's reasonable to kind of jump to conclusions and catastrophize when you have a leader with the power to end the world saying i will exercise said power that will very much indeed end the world now that's just for now things can change the situation can deteriorate um, and there are people who will argue that nuclear weapons are important because it does serve as deterrence they will kind of foster more peace and security because they're so destructive because of mutual Assured destruction for anyone who uses it. But having said that, though, if we're able to survive this moment and move past it as a species, we absolutely, in my opinion, have to work to ban nuclear weapons internationally. Because even if you agree with this premise that nuclear weapons kind of prevent aggression, no one human being, no world leader, should have the unilateral authority and power to end all life on this planet. That's just absurd. I don't care who you are, how rational and well-intentioned you are, you should not have that power. The power of a god, literally. It's not acceptable. So we have to work to denuclearize the world, and this has kind of been a long-time goal of the left, but we need to double down on that effort. It is as important As this effort to save the world from anthropogenic climate change, in my opinion, if we want to actually survive as as a species, then we can't allow all of these nuclear weapons to exist and always be on alert, right? Putin is saying, I'm putting my nuclear uh, command on high alert, but they're always on high alert. So him saying that doesn't really change much, but it's important to know that you know experts as they weigh in and say he's kind of just bluffing they're reminding us yeah we probably shouldn't have this if they're always on high alert and they can be used pretty easily i mean all it takes is one madman to get in power and end all life on earth and that's just not something that we should accept as human beings if we want to survive as a species we have to stop allowing things that lead to our own destruction fossil fuels nuclear weapons So I think that it's important that, you know, if we are able to survive this moment, we have to denuclearize. We have to. We have to put pressure on leaders to push for that. Every single actor in the world who has nuclear weapons should get rid of them. And that's difficult. It's a very momentous task, but we have to try. Because this is about the survival of the human race. And we can't afford to just allow these weapons to exist when we see time and again how close we've come to annihilation.
3: And now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin
4: is Hitler and they say that's not a good thing. And (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. I, I shouldn't have said that. But
0: that was incel and booger eating Nazi Nick Fuentes speaking at AFPAC, the America First Political Action Conference, which is supposed to be the white nationalist rival to CPAC. And its membership is explicitly white nationalist. That's not hyperbole. They are actually openly racist. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the way that they responded to Sheriff Joe Arpaio saying that he has a reputation of being racist. I have the reputation of being the biggest racist in the country. Think of that. Well, I I hate to, I hate to, what are you clapping for, that I am or I'm not? See there was a little bit of a miscommunication there because when he said I have a reputation of being racist. The implication was that, isn't that crazy? If they call me racist, then they'd call anyone racist, but they thought that he was saying I have a reputation of being racist and I'm proud of that, hence the applause. But he was confused, he couldn't understand why they were cheering, and even a racist like that doesn't realize the people who he's dealing with. Sheriff Joe Arpaio is absolutely a racist and he believes that Anyone who's not white should basically be a second-class citizen. That's what his actions in power indicated. But these folks are explicitly calling for a white ethnostate. They are white nationalists, and that's what this conference was about. CPAC isn't conservative enough for them because they're not as explicitly racist as Nick Fuentes wants them to be. Therefore, they started their own pack in 2020 so they can kind of just go— full racist since they weren't welcomed at conservative events because even if conservatives Probably agree with what he has to say. Just saying the quiet part loud isn't good for optics. Now, Nick Fuentes is the founder of this movement. He's openly white nationalist. He marched in Charlottesville in 2017. He was at the Capitol riot on January 6th. And he's also an authoritarian. He explained recently how he wants the women in America to be as repressed as the Afghanistan women are by the Taliban. He said that they're basically a good model. He's pretty open about his fascistic beliefs. But yet this event still draws in some politicians. Paul Gosar attended again, and this time it drew in a new member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene. A member of Congress, another member of Congress, I should say, showed up to this event. And when you speak at an event like this, I can't not think that you are endorsing their white nationalist position since their entire goal is white nationalism so people asked her when she uh left this conference are you just kind of coming out as a white nationalist now and of course she decided to play dumb and deflect because she didn't want to own up to the fact that she probably really agrees with nick fuentes but take a look at what she had to say in defense
5: i have gotten to, to the airport but i'm glad to talk to you about this I do not know Nick Fuentes. I've never heard him speak. I've never seen a video. I don't know what his views are, so I'm not aligned with anything that may be controversial. What I can tell you is I went to his event last night to address his very large following because that is a young, It's a very young following and it's a generation I'm extremely concerned about. It's
0: a white nationalist group.
5: Excuse me a minute. I'll tell you exactly why I went. I went to talk to them about America first policies and I talked to them about what's important for our country going forward. Now in regards to Russia, Putin is a murderer and he should have never invaded Ukraine. What he is doing is completely wrong. I stand with our NATO member allies and I'm completely against this war. Excuse me, I'm gonna finish. Everything that he's doing is wrong. He's killing people over and over. So I'm staunchly against it and I'm staunchly against Vladimir Putin and his his invasion of Ukraine. Another thing that is extremely important for me to say is the whole reason this is happening is because Joe Biden is a weak president. Now America is a weak country and our entire world is falling apart and we're seeing war erupt, which no, did not happen under President Trump because we had peace through strength. So this is something that we've got to really focus on. And I'm appalled at, at our country for putting America last this way, making us depend on China, Russia and foreign countries for our critical supplies and our energy. Do you endorse excuse, Nick Fuentes' views? Excuse me, I, I don't know what his views are. I've never- He's a white nationalist. T- I, I, I do not endorse those views. The reason why I went was to talk to the audience, just like I've talked to many different audiences. I've talked to Democrat union workers earlier this week. I've talked here at CPAC. I talked to his people who were there. It wasn't an alignment. It was to talk about getting everyone together to save our country. And I think but that's a I ask why important. did you I take why did you cars?
3: take the stage, though? An appearance is an endorsement. Young white men with the secret sauce.
0: Yeah, not buying it. I don't believe her at all with how entrenched she is with the far right. There's no way she didn't know who Nick Fuentes is. I think that she did know and she probably just didn't expect backlash because it's marjorie green so of course we're going to expect her to hang around with the most explicit explicitly kooky conspiratorial and racist people but i mean as a member of congress you're kind of legitimizing this political action conference for white nationalists so you know uh, maybe you should speak to why you did this? Um, now, she she gave that explanation, but she also took to Twitter to make approximately 10,000 tweets about this. And um, one of her responses here stood out to me. She said, "'The atheist media demands no disavowal from left-wing politicians who hang out with jihadis and abortionists, but they demand immediate disavowals of any Republican willing to speak to 1,200 people gathered to declare that Christ is King and brands them only by their sins. Now, in a different thread, she said, I am not going to play the guilt-by-association game in which you demand every conservative should justify anything ever said by anyone they've ever shared a room with. I'm not going to be drawn into that. I'm only responsible for what I say, so ask me about my speech. Now we'll get to her video in a second here. She's trying to insinuate that the video uh, will, will kind of prove that she didn't talk about white nationalism and her speech was really anodyne and I'll let you decide. It's, it's interesting to say the least. And sure, you know, she doesn't speak about white nationalism and endorse white nas- nationalism herself, even though she has given us many indications that she is in fact a racist. But you appeared at this event, by and for white nationalists, you used your position as a member of Congress to legitimize this movement that wants a white ethno state, which means we exclude everyone who isn't white. And yet you're frustrated with people who don't disavow jihadists and abortionists? This woman is a fucking moron. A complete moron. Um, you know, it's not like you casually stumbled into a room with people who were bad actors. You went out of your way to go to and speak at this white nationalist conference, Marjorie Green. It's not like, you know, you were sharing an elevator ride with somebody who was wearing, you know, a Klan hood and whatnot, and you thought, wow, maybe I should have waited outside. You chose to go here and there's no way you didn't know. So let's look at the video that she shared here because she's basically saying, look at, see, this is what I was talking about. She called for banning abortion, but she's like, this is what I was talking about. You think this is controversial? Take a look.
5: My name is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I am the daughter of the King, the one true living God, the Alpha, the Omega, our father in heaven, and I am a forgiven sinner washed in the blood of our savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. Christ is king.
0: Now, she said that to a bunch of white nationalists who have a penchant for theocracy. I mean, Nick Fuentes has said that the Taliban model is what he wants here in the United States with respect to women's rights. So that speech is apparently not supposed to be an issue. And I'm sorry, I hate to be that guy. uh, But if God did exist, which he does not, but if he did exist, no way you're getting into heaven i think that even if you weren't a bad and racist person marjorie green god would still send you to hell just to spare everyone else's sanity in heaven because you're that fucking insufferable who would want to listen to you for all of eternity complain about every fucking thing how you're the victim i mean nobody would want that so you you'd definitely be going to hell. but it doesn't matter what she said she could have gotten to this conference and spoken about cookies and ice cream you went to a white nationalist conference and you legitimize them. So regardless of whether or not you agree with their stated goals, that stench will always be on you. This is the people who you cho- choose to associate with because you are also an extremist, Marjorie Greene. And this speaks to a bigger issue with the Republican Party, more broadly speaking. Multiple members of Congress are now openly associating with white nationalists. And on top of that, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is trying to help elect Republican Wendy Waters, who's openly aligning with white supremacists. So the Republican Party is so far gone that this is where they're at. They're perhaps more extreme than fringe parties we see across Europe. I, I mean, they're they're openly aligning with white nationalists. They're openly embracing the idea of a Myanmar-style dictatorship here in the United States, where we have a military coup to install Donald Trump as perpetual president of the United States. So they're not only openly associating with white nationalists, but on top of that, many members of the Republican Party are openly authoritarian. And, you know, there's a lot of news outlets that will point out that, you know, uh, Mitt Romney said that Paul Gosar and Marjorie Greene are stupid, or I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect, and Liz Cheney condemned them. Big whoop de doo The overwhelming majority of Republicans are saying nothing as their colleagues attend white nationalist events. This is Paul Gosar's second year attending this event. So that is a huge issue. If you are not explicitly condemning this, actions of your party who represent you, then you're complicit as well. You are complicit. If there were members of the progressive movement who were explicitly calling for us to, you know, extrajudicially murder our political opponents, I would feel obligated to condemn that because I don't want to be associated with that. So the fact that so many Republicans are silent as their colleagues are now openly associated with white nationalists, it really says how far the Republican Party has gone off an ideological cliff. They are so extreme now that this is where they're at.
6: on this vote the yeas are 46 the nays are 48 three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative the motion is
2: not agreed to
0: that right there was a video of abortion rights dying in the senate now in the likely event the supreme court overturns roe v wade well that was kind of a way to codify abortion rights into law but the gop blocked it and one democrat decided to join with them can you guess who Of course, it was Joe Manchin. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on Monday joined Senate Republicans in blocking legislation that would codify abortion rights into federal law, a vote that came as the conservative-dominated U.S. Supreme Court prepared to rule on a case that could strike a fatal blow to Roe v. Wade. The final vote on whether to advance the House-passed Women's Health Protection Act was 46 to 48, well short of the three-fifth supermajority needed to break the Republican-led filibuster. Every Senate Republican voted no while every Democrat, with the exception of Manchin, voted yes. The House passed the WHPA in September shortly after the Supreme Court let stand a draconian Texas law that deputizes private citizens to enforce the state's near-total ban on abortions. The Republican-author Texas law, which inspired copycat bills across the country, has caused a 60% decline in abortions performed in the state. Now, at the time that I record this video, we don't know what Manchin's excuse is. Maybe it doesn't have bipartisan support. Maybe he just wanted to be a dick either way what he's doing here is ridiculous i mean he's supposed to be the socially liberal fiscally conservative moderate democrat but here he is siding with the gop to block abortion rights now contrary to popular belief if you ban abortion you're not going to get rid of abortions you're just going to force women to go to other states or more harmfully you're going to force women to pursue illegal, unsafe abortions. So it's actually not a pro-life position because if women are resorting to unsafe, illegal abortions, then that poses a greater risk to their health and they may die as a result of this. So if you're pro-life, then obviously you want to respect women, right? And if you're pro-life, really, wouldn't you want to tackle poverty and be an anti-imperialist, fight war, provide all Americans with health care so thousands of Americans every single year don't die? Don't you think that's the actual pro-life position? It is. It's just that these Republicans don't actually care about life because their actions demonstrate that they couldn't care less if human beings perish. What they care about is controlling women. That's what this is about. And Manchin just aided them in that particular effort. Now, we'll know pretty soon whether or not this far-right Supreme Court is actually bold enough to force women into getting back-alley coat hanger abortions in the year 2022. Quote, In a matter of weeks, the Supreme Court is expected to hand down its ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that poses a direct threat to abortion protections enshrined under the High Court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. The case is centered on a Mississippi law that prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, a ban that other Republican-led states have sought to replicate, In arguments held in december a majority of justices on the high court appeared poised to uphold the mississippi law now we've talked about this before the supreme court could rule more narrowly and they could just simply uphold the mississippi law which further restricts access to abortion or they could take it all away and just allow states to ban abortion now in the event this were to happen if they were to say Roe v. Wade is null and void. You can now enact your own abortion bans. Well, the Guttmacher Institute predicts that 26 states, these ones in particular, would likely ban abortion. And there are multiple states like South Dakota and Utah which have what's known as trigger laws, which, I mean, in the event Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion would automatically be banned because the law would then be triggered. So here's a list of states to watch who, at a minimum, would effectively ban abortions with six-week limits, which, for all intents and purposes, is a ban on abortion. So, I mean, we don't know how bad it's going to get. It's not like I expected this to actually pass, but still to have Joe Manchin side with Republicans again, but when it comes to a social issue, I mean, I just got to ask, what's the point of Joe Manchin? Why is he a Democrat? If you're fiscally conservative and socially conservative, won't even support the basic right of abortions in the United States, then... Just switch parties at this point. I don't understand why you're a Democrat. Why are you pretending as if you're a Democrat? You're not. So just switch parties at this point. You're you're useless. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released a new three thousand five hundred page report. And in essence, it concludes that we are essentially doomed as a species. Now, obviously, that's an oversimplification and I'm being a little bit facetious here. But this is uh, pretty bleak, reading this, and when I see this, I read this as kind of a forecast as to what's to come. Now, they still leave a little bit of room for hope, but essentially what they make very clear is that disaster at this point is inevitable, and what we can control is essentially minimizing the scope of the disaster. How much disaster do we want to see? How catastrophic do we want climate change to become? Because it will be a catastrophe. But- How bad and that's at this point what we have in our control. Now, obviously, I don't think many of us have time to read all 3,500 pages, but there's a lot of really good summaries out there. And I'm going to turn to a report from the Washington Post uh, where they kind of give us the five main takeaways from this report. This was written by Brady Dennis and Sarah Kaplan. And here's the five main things that you should know about this report. First and foremost, a certain amount of suffering is inevitable, although adaptation can help. Number two, every incremental increase in temperature will lead to dramatically more disease, death, and frequent, costly disasters. Number three, climate change is battering the places and populations least able to adapt, and that is all but certain to continue. Number four, global warming is wreaking havoc on plants and wildlife. Number five, for many locations on Earth, the capacity for adaptation is already significantly limited, even as it becomes more critical. So a lot of this isn't necessarily going to be surprising to a lot of you. We already know that climate change is bad and will be bad, but we're learning with more specificity how it's going to impact certain places in the world, certain species. Um, So when it comes to point number one about the uh, adaptation helping, that's a really important point. To the extent that we can adapt to climate changes, we should do that. But certain crises will be inevitable. Now, one of them is deaths due to climate-related illnesses such as extreme heat and childhood malnutrition. Because of this, we will see quarter of a million more deaths within the next uh, or in three decades. So that's one thing to keep in mind more deaths because of climate change number two every incremental increase in temperature will lead to dramatically more disease death and frequent costly disasters now when you think about the difference between 1.5 degrees celsius and 2 degrees celsius that's ostensibly insignificant right not in the context of climate change because it's probably going to be the case that we're not going to meet the 1.5 degree goal we're not going to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Um, I don't even know if we're going to keep it to two degrees, but the difference between 1.5 degree and uh, Celsius and two degrees Celsius is laid out here, and it is really, really drastic. So first and foremost, if we keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to two degrees, that's 65 million less people exposed to extreme heat waves every five years. That's just a 0.5 degree Celsius difference. If we don't, reach 1.5 degree warming if we don't limit warming to 1.5 degrees celsius that's 65 million more people exposed to extreme heat waves every five years that's an additional half billion people living in areas with water scarcity a number that will increase over the years and certain areas won't be able to produce crops outdoor work will just not be feasible in these areas and this is all if we can't keep warming below 1.5 degrees celsius and we're probably going to surpass two so, yeah. Now, here's what is really uh, alarming for parents if you have a young child. So, coming generations will inherit a much harsher planet than the one their parents knew. For instance, people younger than 10 in the year 2020 are projected to experience a nearly fourfold increase in extreme events at 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming and a five-fold increase if temperatures rise by 3 degrees Celsius or 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So, They're going to already see disaster, but it's going to get much, much worse for them. It will be much worse for them if we don't keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Point number three. So climate change is battering the places and populations least able to adapt. Um, See, developing countries, they did not contribute to this crisis, but yet they will bear the brunt of the disaster of climate change. And what they are estimating here is a refugee crisis the likes of which humanity has never seen. We're talking about the displacement of 31 to 143 million people in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, South Asia. I mean, people are not going to be able to stay in their homes because of climate change. And when you have this mass refugee crisis... That in and of itself is absolutely horrific. But then you think through the political implications of that. Will there be a wave of xenophobia, new political movements that erupt against these refugees? How is this going to impact countries? There's so much to try to think about here. And they're not giving you a, a political analysis. They're just saying 31 to 143 million people. We don't know how much in particular, but a lot of people will be displaced prepare for that. Now, uh, when it comes to point number four, global warming is wreaking havoc on plants and wildlife. So they estimate that uh, 10% of all plant and animal life faces extinction if we uh, do not limit warming to two degrees Celsius. Now, this doesn't just mean that cute animals and pretty plants will go bye-bye. This disrupts the entire ecosystem. This affects humanity as well. So it's not just sad that they're going to cease to exist permanently. This affects us as well. And on top of that, because of the effect that this will have on, on uh, animals, so they cite an increase in the chance of disease jumping from animals to people as animals become displaced, uh, which I can only assume means that pandemics will become a more common phenomenon. So if you thought that COVID was bad, have fun dealing with multiple pandemics in the future. Bleak bleak shit. I've warned you. I warned you. Now, finally, uh, for the last point, many locations on Earth, you know, uh, they speak about the capacity for adaptation being limited. So to the extent that cities have tried to adapt to the changing climate, it's been really incremental. But areas where they've not adapted at all are developing countries. They do not have the resources needed to adapt. So the developed world rich countries are going to have to help poor countries if people in these countries are going to survive if we're going to expect them to be able to live in their countries which i believe they very much want to do i mean who wants to be displaced who wants to leave so we should be assisting them and we're not we're not that's that's very clear here we're not even helping ourselves we're not really doing much to adapt but they should be the ones who we are prioritizing because they will deal with climate change the worst. Sub-Saharan Africa is basically going to be hit uh, or one of the hardest hit areas in the world and we're just kind of wishing them luck. All of this is incredibly grim and bleak and it's hard to not get depressed reading this, but, you know, it feels like at this point we've collectively decided as a species to just say, fuck it. The people in power just don't care enough. They've prioritized short-term profits over the long-term survival of the human species, and they're just telling climate change, let her rip, because our profits currently are just, they're too sweet, so we're not going to do shit about it. But it's already the case that generations today, people born, my nephews, my niece, they're going to experience a fourfold increase in extreme events. So all of these you know, new things that we're seeing, increased severity of hurricanes and increased frequency of extreme weather events, annual fire fire events, you know, where we see these mass wildfires along the West Coast, this will all increase fourfold. Fourfold. So the world is going to look very, very different in the next few decades. And that's even if we do everything that we need to do But really, the question here, what we can control as a species, is how bad will we let this get? Will we let it get so bad that it will almost certainly lead to our annihilation as a species? Or are we going to fight it and actually stop? And it seems like the former is what we've chosen as a species. And, you know, I say that not just because lawmakers are choosing to not act, because of reasons, the deficit, special interests contributing to them, but because people just don't care about climate change. I mean, this video, I guarantee it, will will perform worse than all other videos that I put out this week. Um, And it's because people have either checked out because they feel hopeless or because they just don't care. They feel as if it's not going to impact them in the near term. So why worry about climate change when there's all these other issues? And I get it. There's a lot of crises that we're dealing with currently. But we're talking about the most important issue, the survival of our species. So if you feel as if this issue was boring to you, force yourself to pay attention because future generations can't afford us to be ambivalent here. We have to be active and we have to put pressure on lawmakers to take action. Otherwise, we're doomed as a species. That was grassroots activists at the Texas State Capitol protesting the governor's new directive to investigate parents with trans children if they seek out gender affirming care for their trans children. So in other words, if you're a loving, accepting and affirming parent, you are a child abuser, according to Governor Greg Abbott and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. And I talked about this last week on the program, but the investigations have already begun. As J. David Goodman of The New York Times reports, Texas officials have begun investigating parents of transgender adolescents for possible child abuse, according to a lawsuit filed on Tuesday after Governor Greg Abbott directed them last week to handle certain medical treatments as possible crimes. Among the first to be investigated was an employee of the State Protective Services Agency who has a 16-year-old transgender child. On Tuesday, the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas and Lambda Legal went to state court in Austin to try to stop the inquiry. The employee, who was not named In the court filing, works on the review of reports of abuse and neglect. She was placed on administrative leave last week, according to the filing, and on Friday was visited by an investigator from the agency, which is also seeking medical records related to her child. The family of the child identified in court documents, only as Mary Doe has refused to voluntarily turn over records. We are terrified for Mary's health and well being and for our family, wrote the employee in a declaration filed with the suit, in which she and her husband are identified identified as Jane and John Doe, quote, I feel betrayed by my state and the agency for whom I work. She added, not providing Mary with the medically necessary health care that she needs is not an option for us. And that's really important. So gender affirming care is medically necessary. Not only does it reduce depression, but it also reduces suicidality. This is why the American Medical Association and American Academy of Pediatrics all say that gender-affirming care for trans youth is not only appropriate but necessary because this is what is needed to help them. But Texas is saying, no, 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 we know more than the experts and the parents themselves and we will intervene into these families and unilaterally say, if you seek out gender affirming care for your trans child, which is the right thing to do, we're going to treat you as a child abuser. And ironically, they're treating somebody who works for the state of Texas, who actually has experience investigating instances of abuse and neglect as a child abuser, as if this person wouldn't know what is and isn't child abuse, but because they love their 16-year-old trans child, well, this family is being treated as criminals by the state of Texas. Why? For political purposes, it doesn't really matter what their reason is. It's bigoted, and this is I don't even know how to describe it, but here's how one person did. This is what Charles says about this on Twitter. He describes this as a witch hunt. The Salem Witch Trials Inquisition-style attack on trans youth and gender-affirming care and their parents is one of the most shameful examples of far-right politicians exploiting human lives for partisan political purposes. No wonder they want to block people from voting. And that's exactly it. I made this point on my show uh, last week when we talked about this, but we just heard for months. The far right screech about mask mandates in schools and vaccine mandates, saying that the state shouldn't be allowed to tell parents how to parent. But here they are treating loving parents as child abusers because they have a political agenda, because they want to eradicate trans children out of existence by force of the state. It's just, it's truly morally reprehensible. And what makes matters worse is the widespread ambivalence that I'm seeing. I think that a lot of people expect transphobia from these far-right legislatures or legislatures controlled by far-right politicians and governors. But this is so removed from anything that we've seen thus far. This is literally the state of Texas seeking out parents who love their children, who seek out medically necessary gender affirming care and trying to get their children taken away from them. I mean, I understand if you claim that a parent is subjecting their child to child abuse, if gender affirming care is child abuse, the implication is we take that child away from you. We remove that child from said abusive situation. So it's just it's truly egregious. And this is a human rights violation. And every single business who claims to care about LGBTQ rights, they better be boycotting Texas. I, I mean, this is every amount of pressure that we can apply has to be applied because it's it's come to a point where people in Texas who have tra- trans children, they're not safe. They have to leave. I mean, what else do you do? You can either choose to not seek out gender-affirming care for your kid and let them be depressed and miserable and possibly kill themselves, or you do what the experts say you should do, and you get treated as a child abuser. You get placed on an administrative leave, in this case here. I'm choosing my kid if I'm a parent here. I'm telling the state of Texas, fuck you. What's sad is that people don't have the resources to leave in a lot of instances, so they kind of just have to put up with it and do what's best for their kid and hope for the best, hope that the state doesn't investigate them, but they're already doing that. They're seeking out parents who love their children. It's ridiculous. It's just, I don't even know. I'm honestly, I'm speechless at this story. I'm taken aback because the details are so gruesome. This is happening in the United States in 2022. And people don't really seem interested in this story. I get that there's a lot going on in the world, but this is something that requires the utmost care and concern. And everyone should be making noise about this if you care about children. So, um, you know, the real child abuse is what Texas is doing to these kids. If they remove children from these households, then the damage will be irreparable to these kids. So, uh, I don't know what to say. It's just this is nauseating to see, but this is where we're at in the United States of America. There was a lot of stuff going on yesterday. There was President Biden's State of the Union address, and there was also primary races taking place in the state of Texas, because believe it or not, it is already an election year. Once again, I don't think that I fully recovered from 2020, but nonetheless, we're doing it again. So overall, um, we're gonna talk about the election result, and I've gotta say, just off the bat, not a bad night for the left. I mean, I didn't get all of the wins that I wanted when it comes to progressive candidates that I was following. But overall, I mean, it wasn't the bloodbath that we've come to expect with leftist congressional candidates. We had some really solid victories and one guarantee of a leftist who will be going to Congress. And that's really exciting. Um, You know, so overall, not too shabby compared to, um, you know, other primary nights that we've all experienced before as leftists, which have been painful. But let's look at the results, starting with the gubernatorial race. So it looks like Beto O'Rourke handily defeated all of his primary opponents, so he will ultimately be the Democrat that will lose against Governor Greg Abbott come November. Here's hoping to him going away forever after that. Now, when it comes to the House races that I was following closely, there was a progressive candidate in the 30th Congressional District of Texas. Her name was Jessica Mason, and she was a phenomenal candidate. I was rooting for her, but this was a really tough race because this was a crowded field. Unfortunately, she did not win. Looking at the results here, she came in 8th place. So hopefully she will choose to run again in the future when the field isn't as crowded. Hopefully she'll boost her name recognition in the meanwhile. Really disappointing result here. She was a great candidate, Um, so I, I look forward to following her and what she chooses to do next. Now when it comes to the 37th Congressional District of Texas, I was rooting for donna imam she's a longtime friend of the show she nearly won her seat and made it to congress in 2020 this time didn't come close unfortunately so she was facing off against incumbent lloyd doggett and he won with 79.2 percent of the vote with 92 percent of precincts reporting donna imam only received 17.8 percent of the vote which is very disappointing to say the least considering how close she came before But, you know, you win some, you lose some. And um, this one is just really disappointing because Donna Imam is brilliant. She is a strong, solid progressive. She's an engineer, so she's brilliant. So having her in Congress would have been incredibly valuable, but unfortunately didn't happen this time. You know, the districts were redrawn. So I thought that she actually had a better shot of winning this time than in 2020 when she you know, defeated her primary opponents and faced off against the Republican. But um, that wasn't the case. So I will still be following Donna Imam and hope that in the future she chooses to run again. And, you know, I have no doubt that she will continue to fight. Um, Now, with that aside, there's other leftists that were running, but those were the two that I was really watching closely. But now let's get to the good news, starting with the Kind of mixed slash good news. Um, I know you all were paying attention to the race between Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar. Henry Cuellar is under investigation by the FBI, so this should be a no-brainer. She should have easily beat him. Now, I was watching the results roll in, and there was 15-20% of the results, and she had 70% of the vote, so I thought, okay, this is looking really good so far. The preliminary results are giving me a little bit of hopium as the night went on. Her numbers went down and down and down. And then it seemed like, okay, her just winning outright, getting more than 50% and not having to compete in a runoff against Henry Cuellar, that's diminishing. But here's where we're at currently. Neither managed to pull the 50% needed to win outright, so they'll both be going to a runoff. He has a 1.7% lead over her with 95% of precincts reporting. And I've just got to say, you know, I have long stopped hoping that Democratic Party primary voters will do the smart or even the logical thing. But when you have this district that looks to be more and more like a swing district, voting for someone who's under investigation for the FBI is a really galaxy-brained thing to do. Um, So what are you thinking? What are you thinking if you voted for Henry Cuellar? Are you stupid? Now, to be fair to the voters in this particular district, I'm assuming that they just didn't know. But it's really frustrating to me that Democratic Party primary voters just instinctively always vote incumbent, incumbent, incumbent because reasons, right? Maybe they think that the incumbent defeated a Republican before, therefore they're the best to go up against the Republican again. But you can't keep complaining about the state of the country if you keep electing the same fucking corporate Democrats over and over and over again. So it is very frustrating to me that this was even close. It should have been a blowout. But nonetheless, I don't want to rain on everyone's parade because she's not out of it yet. The problem is that, you know, either she is going to boost her name recognition between now and the runoff election or people will kind of forget about the fact that he's under FBI investigation. Remember, Jessica Cisneros is a grassroots funded candidate, so she does not have a lot of money to send out mailers and do TV advertisements blasting the fact to constituents in this district that he is under investigation by the FBI. A Republican, however, who is funded by corporate America is going to be able to do that. So it looks as if if Henry Cuellar pulls this off, that seat is going to go to a Republican. So voters in this district, they basically have the choice between electing a progressive or voting for a corporate Democrat who will almost certainly lose to a Republican. And again, I don't have much faith in Democratic Party primary voters because they just love voting for dinosaurs over and over again who are corrupt and corporatist. So who knows? I really hope that Jessica Cisneros pulls this off. But I mean, it's not it's not a foregone conclusion yet. And I don't want to be too much of a doomer, but this shouldn't have even been close. But yet he overtook her and had a 1.7% lead. So I'm rooting for her. If she loses, then voters in this district, I mean, I don't like to voter blame very frequently, but I don't know what else to say. You're just dumb if you're voting for someone who's under investigation by the FBI. And if you didn't know that, maybe do a quick Google search before you vote. I mean, Jesus Christ, people, this is our democracy we're talking about. Five minutes to just do a quick search on Henry Cuellar. That can make a huge difference. So Jesus Christ, do your due diligence for once, Democratic Party primary voters. But putting aside all of that, the really good news came when uh, we looked at the results from the 35th Congressional District of Texas, where strong progressive Greg Cesar, endorsed by AOC and other progressives one in a landslide with 61.2% of the vote and 95% of precincts reporting at the time that I record this video. Now, according to Cook, this is a D20 plus district. I believe it's D21 to be exact. So he is almost certainly going to get elected and go to Congress. Really good news. So we have another solid progressive almost certainly going in Congress, being another vote, for the left. And that's really important. He supports Medicare for all and all of the progressive priorities that we care about. Whether or not, you know, he agrees with us on strategy, that's yet to be seen. But at least to have him there advocating for our positions, that is really, really important. So I'm excited about this. I think that he's a phenomenal candidate. He's one that I I didn't follow too closely, but I was aware of. And it's really nice to see him not just win, but win in a landslide. Like we needed that win. We need victories like this. And I'm really glad whatever he did here, I hope that he shares his winning strategy with other candidates across the country. But this was really important to see. Now, if you haven't heard of him yet, let me go ahead and share his ad that he was running. Um, Overall, great candidate.
4: The victories that mean the most are fought for together. No one thought that a group of workers and community advocates could take on the biggest corporations in Texas that a young organizer could win a seat on the city council, or that our big dreams and bold ideas could turn into transformational policies. But we fought and we won so that everyday people could have a seat at the decision-making table, so that workers could make a living wage, so families could afford to stay in their home and reproductive rights could be protected. Together, we've made real progressive change in Texas but our biggest challenges are still ahead. Right-wing officials who don't care if we freeze or get sick or if we're discriminated against, they only cater to the powerful. They think we can't win. They're wrong. I'm Greg Casar and I believe that working families from Bear to Hayes to Comal to Travis County deserve a progressive leader who will always fight and deliver for reproductive rights good jobs, Medicare for all, and a better Texas. That's why I'm running for Congress, because this is our fight, our future.
0: So there you have it, Greg Cesar going to Congress almost certainly. So really important. We we could have Jessica Cisneros also go to Congress. She'll be facing off in a run air, uh, runoff against Henry Cuellar. So we'll have to wait and see. But Again, I just want to say, I don't want to be too doomer here. Overall, this was a pretty damn good night for the left. Usually, we get zero Ws, right? But we have potentially two, depending on how well Jessica Cisneros does in, I believe, May when the runoff takes place. But we have almost one guaranteed win in November with Greg Cesar, and we have another potential winner in Jessica Cisneros. It's kind of a more difficult district to win against the Republican, even if there is a Democratic incumbent there currently, so we'll have to wait and see. But overall, not too bad. You know, I've kind of expected zero wins in all of these races over the years after seeing so many elections. But to have one, possibly two, look, that's good. That's a victory that I think we need to celebrate. I'll take it. So as you all know, President Biden gave his first State of the Union speech yesterday. And like all political YouTubers, I considered streaming this because that's what everyone else was doing. But then I decided, I love myself too much, so I decided to farm runes in Elden Ring instead while I listened to it in the background, and I'm very much happy with my decision. Um, But because I wasn't actually watching it, because I only listened to it, I missed this insanely bizarre moment that I later discovered when I logged onto Twitter.
2: Many of you have been there. I've been in and out
3: of Iraq and Afghanistan over 40 times.
0: These... What was that? What is she doing? (laughs) Can she not just pretend to be a normal human being for a single hour until he finishes his speech? What is, what is she doing? What is that? I don't even know how to process what we just saw there. Jesus Christ. Um, But then there's also Chuck Schumer who didn't necessarily have the timing down when it comes to when you should stand up to applaud.
3: The American Rescue Plan help working people.
0: Democratic Party leadership is just so embarrassing. They are a national embarrassment. They are humiliating. They're just insufferable. So I think that you already can kind of gather what my thoughts on the entire State of the Union speech was, given my attitude and my overtly cynical view of everything. But I mean, I always am not very fond of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, to be clear. Uh, But when it comes to Joe Biden's speech, look, it wasn't all bad, right? There were moments where I think he did a good job at being a presentable leader, when he told Americans, you're going to be okay, when he was discussing Ukraine in the context of possible nuclear war with Russia. That's important. That's something that Trump would never do. You do have to reassure citizens that things are going to be okay, not just further fan the flames. You're supposed to calm them down. And that's what he did. And I think that that was indeed important. Um, On top of that, he bragged about his response to COVID-19. And I think that you should do that. You know, the way that vaccines have been rolled out and have been widely available and free, that's important. That matters. He also talked about how he shipped more vaccines to developing countries than any other country. And that's good. Definitely not sufficient, to be clear, but still something that I would indeed be bragging about if I were president. But aside from that, the speech, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. It seemed pointless. I don't know what the point of the speech was. It was a lot of empty rhetoric. He talked about his plans and things that he wants to, in theory, see happen. He discussed the myriad ways Americans are suffering, but he doesn't actually have a plan to fight for them. My plan is X. My plan is this. Hey, Let's let Medicare negotiate drug prices. Let's do X. Let's do Y. The problem is that how are you going to fight for them? That's the key thing that we need to hear. And since you failed to get your plan enacted into law because you have two members of Congress who you refuse to call out obstructing your agenda, we'll make some announcements. Tonight, I am signing an executive order, announcing that I'm signing an executive order tomorrow, canceling all student debt, moving Cannabis off of schedule one. You can make so many exciting announcements that would galvanize people, but it didn't happen Now perhaps, you know, I Am too cynical because apparently according to uh, polls people who tuned in seemed pretty happy I think the number was 78% of Americans approved of his speech but for me I've been following politics for long enough to where I can see past the rhetoric politicians who diagnose the problems and then propose plans, that's one thing, but the question is, how do you fight to get these things enacted? And we we got nothing, and where we saw no desire to fight, we got no announcements of what he'd be doing unilaterally via executive order. And maybe you think I'm being too cynical, I don't think that I am being too cynical, but it seems like AOC actually agrees with me, and she expressed her disappointment in Biden's speech, albeit in a much more nicer way. So Michael Schnull of The Hill explains, Ocasio-Cortez, speaking to MSNBC during an interview after Biden's speech, said there were some things that were left unsaid in the president's remarks, specifically pointing to student loan debt, education, and immigration. I do think that there are some things that were left unsaid in which we're really going to have to work on as a party in order to really speak to constituencies that have historically supported the president, whose turnout we need, and whose support we need right now, and in the coming years, that perhaps haven't heard their issues spoken to in a way that they wanted to hear it, Ocasio-Cortez said when asked if she liked the president's speech things like student loan debt, larger themes and crises in education, as well as the piece on immigration was really just glossed over, Ocasio-Cortez said. We heard, you know, some speaking to dreamers, but dreamers want their families to be able to stay. They don't want to be separated from their parents either, Ocasio-Cortez said. So I think there's some themes that left a little bit to be desired for key constituencies in the Democratic base, but the president's goal was very clear. He was laser-focused on really projecting a theme of unity, and I think he stuck to that, she added. And sure, I, I think that that's." pretty fair. She's nicer than I am here with regard to his speech. But I mean, she's not going to say his speech was terrible, but she's essentially saying very gently, hey, Biden, your speech was terrible and we're all going to get wiped out if you don't do something. Now, yes, he did focus on unity, a unity agenda fighting, uh, you know, the opioid epidemic. These are things that nobody disagrees with. But the problem is that saying that you want to do things is different than doing things and, I mean, your rhetoric isn't going to unify the country. Getting things done, ameliorating the suffering of Americans is going to be what unifies the country or at least, I don't know, stops people from running back into the arms of Republicans every two to four years after you inevitably disappoint. So I mean, the speech to me, it felt incredibly just pointless. You went there to talk about Build Back Better without mentioning Build Back Better, I believe. Um, all these wonderful things that you were dangling in in front of us, but all of us know it's not going to pass. I mean, he called on Congress to get it done. When it comes to voting rights, he said to the Senate, get this done. Come on, let's act. But why are these things being blocked? It's because of members of your own party. How powerful would it have been for you to name and shame Cinema and Mansion? I mean, he talked about abortion rights when that same day or maybe the day before, either way. Manchin sided with the Republicans to block an abortion bill in the Senate. So you can talk about all of these wonderful things, but voters don't give a flying fuck about all of these things if you don't get them accomplished. I care about the policies getting passed, not cited. I care about the crises being addressed, not cited. Rhetoric is meaningless when we're this far down the drain, when we're we're circling the drain and we're nearly down the drain. So we need more than rhetoric. And, you know, State of the Union speeches, they are largely fluff. They are just rhetoric-based. But he could have used this opportunity to re-energize the base, re-energize young people, and he didn't do that. So, by my standards, he failed. But that was exactly my expectation. I expected him to disappoint, but I certainly didn't expect Nancy Pelosi to be as bizarre as she was. But, I mean, she's kind of a weird person. We have leaders who are just... I don't know, their brains are melting before our very eyes and, you know, they're not doing anything. They're all rich, so they're comfortable. They don't care. I just feel frustrated. But I mean, this is exactly what I expected to feel, which is why I didn't really want to watch the State of the Union and I opted to listen and, you know, comfort myself through the cynicism by playing video games. because. We keep hearing the same things from politicians, but nothing gets accomplished. Actually fucking act and stop talking for once. That's what I want people to take away from this. Stop talking, start doing. So I don't think that members of the media fully grasp the implications of the questions that they ask sometimes, especially as it pertains to the prospect of a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia. Because in essence, they're asking, why aren't you doing World War Three? Why aren't we going to war directly with Russia? They don't get what that means. Either they're ignorant or insane, but they haven't processed that a direct military confrontation with Russia could very easily lead to the annihilation of all life on Earth. For example, NBC News chief correspondent Richard Engel tweeted out, Perhaps the biggest risk calculation slash moral dilemma of the war so far. A massive Russian convoy is about 30 miles from Kiev. The U.S. and NATO could likely destroy it, but that would be direct involvement against Russia and risk everything. Does the West watch in silence as it rolls? So the implication is that... By watching in silence, well, that's immoral. We could be doing more. But at least Richard acknowledges here that. To engage with Russia directly means we do risk everything, and by everything, we should be clear every single time. This means ending all life on Earth with nuclear warfare. But again, like, he gets credit because he at least acknowledged that. Watch what uh, Vice President Harris was asked in an interview with CBS. I hear you on that, but those images are heartbreaking to watch. We see innocent civilians
2: being killed. We see children being killed, and the administration has made it clear there will be no boots on the ground. What will it take? Will anything change that? Will we stand by and watch innocent people continue to be killed here?
0: So a member of the media was asking the vice president of the United States, why aren't we going to war with Russia directly? Why aren't we putting boots on the ground? Why aren't we directly engaging with Russia? And that is insanity. Everyone understands how devastating the situation is. If you have a heart, it's breaking right now for the people of Ukraine. Everybody acknowledges, or at least most reasonable people acknowledge, that Russia's invasion is aggressive and illegal, and they invaded their neighbor who wasn't provoking them. It's just, it's maddening to think about this. The pain and destruction, though, that we see in Ukraine would be orders of magnitude worse if this conflict were to grow and bring in world powers. I just they have to understand that now when they're not calling to, you know, put boots on the ground, members of the media and politicians are saying, well, perhaps we can do a Ukrainian no fly zone, which, again, would lead to a direct confrontation with Russia. Here's who's calling for it. As Aaron Blake of The Washington Post explains, while the idea has been percolating in some corners for the better part of a week, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky signed onto it Monday. He told Axios that Ukraine can beat the aggressor if Western allies do their part. Other Ukrainian leaders are calling for it, as well as some conservative politicians in Britain. A Ukrainian journalist pleaded with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson for a no-fly zone Tuesday in an emotional scene. Representative Adam Kinzinger called for one Friday. and former NATO Supreme Commander, retired U.S. Air Force General Philip Breedlove, has said its time has come. Now additionally, Republican Senator Roger Wicker has also called for a Ukrainian no-fly zone. Now, I fully expect calls for a Ukrainian no-fly zone to grow. But understand what that means and what people are asking. They're asking for the United States to shoot down Russian jets. Again, that is a direct confrontation. And it's more than that. It's, in essence, a declaration of war. Not just any war. World War III, which will indeed involve nuclear weapons. Now, thankfully, the Biden administration has resisted all of this... um, calls to escalate and Jen Psaki answered perfectly when she was asked why the administration hasn't implemented a Ukrainian no-fly zone. Take a look.
1: On military, is there any way in which the U.S. would support a no-fly zone over Ukraine?
2: Well, here's what's important for everybody to know about a no-fly zone. What that would require is implementation by the U.S. military. It would essentially mean the U.S. military would be shooting down planes, Russian planes. That is definitely escalatory. That would potentially put us into a place where we're in a, a military conflict with russia that is not something the president wants to do so that's a no on that that those are all the reasons why that's not a good idea
0: now she's absolutely correct about that i don't think that members of the press get it they don't they just don't seem to understand what they're calling for here to say maybe we should do a ukrainian no-fly zone that is synonymous with saying maybe we should do world war three and nuclear war potentially with russia Understand, if there's a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, that means World War III. And if World War III is upon our doorstep, well, here's what the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said. Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov said on Wednesday that if a third world war were to take place, it would involve nuclear weapons and be destructive, the RIA news agency reported. That's what Russia is saying. That's a threat. Now, it's been about a week of war so far, and Russia has invoked nuclear weapons approximately four times. They're threatening that if other nations get involved, they will use nuclear weapons. That's the implication. That's what they want us to know. Now, my hypothesis is that Putin doesn't actually want to use nuclear weapons because that would almost guarantee the destruction of Russia and himself as well. It's the concept of MAD, mutually assured destruction. But that's not a hypothesis that I want to test out. Not a game that I want to play. Not a chance that I want to take. So when Russia says we will use nuclear weapons against anyone who intervenes, for the sake of humanity, I think that we should take them at their word. Because we can't afford not to. So when we talk about the prospect of no-fly zone or boots on the ground, we need to be very clear. When Kamala Harris, for example, was asked that question, she should have followed it up by saying, do you realize what you're asking? That means everyone is going to die. Of course, we are doing everything that we possibly can, short of directly confronting Russia here. But you're asking for more pain and suffering. You're, you're asking for pain and suffering, death and destruction on a scale the likes of which humanity has not seen. That's what you're asking for when you call for a Ukrainian no-fly zone or American boots on the ground directly confronting the Russian military. Now, Zach Bochamp of Vox put together a really important article explaining why the Ukrainian no fly zone is tantamount to a declaration of war on Russia. Quote, this is a catastrophic idea. Stripped of cant, the U.S. announcing a no fly zone in Ukraine would be an American declaration of war on Russia, the first major conflict between the two nations that, put together, control 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. A no fly zone is not a magical umbrella that prevents planes flying in a given area, it's a decision to shoot at planes that fly in a given area explains Olga Olakerb, the international crisis group's director for Europe and Central Asia, to put in a no-fly zone is to go to war. So it is likely going to be the case that we will see pressure grow for a no-fly zone, for boots on the ground, and there's going to be, you know, appeals to suffering, which are absolutely compelling. People are dying, so obviously there's this human instinct to want to do more. I understand that. But Biden's administration, they've done great resistant calls— And I hope they continue to do that, but I think they have to lay it out a little bit more clearly so the American people understand what's at stake here. Whenever somebody asks, do you want or would you consider a, you know, Ukrainian no-fly zone or boots on the ground, they have to say, do you want everyone to die? They have to put it in those bleak terms because people don't get it. They think that a Ukrainian no-fly zone perhaps is just a minor escalation similar to sanctions, but no, it means direct confrontation. It means a declaration of war. Boots on the ground is war with Russia. If you want to survive as a species, we have to avoid that. So the situation is absolutely horrifying. Nobody is denying that. It's it's sad, sitting there and essentially being forced to watch and doing sanctions, arming Ukrainians, trying to help from a distance. But doing more than that means we all die, means everyone on this planet is at risk of nuclear annihilation because if Russia uses nukes, then the U.S. will use nukes and we end life on this planet. So I understand the instinct and the feeling of, man, we're not doing enough and the war is getting worse and Russia isn't backing down. I get that. We all get that. It's horrifying. But I need people to understand what they're asking. Specifically, I need m- members of the media to understand what they're asking, what they are suggesting. Instead of saying a no-fly zone or boots on the ground, just say World War Three. just say nuclear warfare, because that's what they're asking when they urge the Biden administration to do things like that. And I really hope that they continue to thwart off, you know, the pressure that they're feeling. Because there will be pressure for them to do more. But understand the consequences of doing more. We should do everything that we can, but we cannot directly engage with Russia. Humanity can't afford it. So the good news is that French President Emmanuel Macron still has a direct line of communication between him and Vladimir Putin. The bad news, however, is that after a 90-minute phone call between the two, Macron is convinced that Vladimir Putin is not going to stop his aggressive invasion anytime soon. And there's a really chilling quote from the article that we're going to read where Macron essentially says after speaking with Putin, he thinks the worst is yet to come. Yeah, really, really bleak. So as Jake Epstein of Insider explains, French President Emmanuel Macron thinks the worst is yet to come in Ukraine after talking with Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday, according to multiple reports. A senior French official said Macron's warning came after the two leaders spoke for 90 minutes, which did not yield any diplomatic progress, the Washington Post reported. Putin also told Macron that Russia's goals in Ukraine would be fulfilled and that the war was going according to plan, Reuters reported, citing a statement issued by the Kremlin. The statement read, It was confirmed that, first of all, we are talking about the demilitarization and neutral status of Ukraine so that a threat to the Russian Federation will never emanate from its territory. Russia on Wednesday captured its first major city, Kherson, after nearly a week of failure to break Ukrainian resistance. Western officials have warned that Russia's lack of anticipated progress in Ukraine so far may lead to Putin's decision to stage a more aggressive approach. Both Russia and Ukraine said the second round of negotiations between the two sides is slated to take place. on Thursday. So what I gather from this is that Macron was hoping to see some level of rationale or common sense from Vladimir Putin, expecting him maybe to understand that the situation isn't going as easily as he anticipated and to perhaps withdraw. But Putin is saying, no, we are pressing on and we're going to finish what we started here. And that's really horrifying, because that absolutely implies that things are going to get worse. So I think that Macron is right to deduce that the worst is yet to come, because as this invasion drags out and Putin gets more desperate and frustrated, he will resort to more aggressive tactics. In fact, we just learned that the International Criminal Court is launching an investigation into Russian war crimes in Ukraine this week. So you know, if you're Vladimir Putin and we assume some level of rationality to him, The cost to his economy has already been massive. The Russian economy is in shambles. So he's already paid a pretty high toll and and that price will increase as time goes on. But for him to just withdraw at this point, already seeing the economy in shambles, he probably feels like, look, I've got nothing left to lose, so I might as well see this through to the end. Now, what is his end goal? probably to take over Ukraine entirely. I think he's been pretty clear about that. So it's horrifying because that means that this war is going to get more bloody. This means that he's not going to back down. So there's a lot to think about here. How long is this going to go on? Um, Is there any cost economically that he is willing to not pay? I mean, will oligarchs eventually exert so much pressure on him that he has no choice? It's really difficult to say, but currently, at least at this time, he's not backing down. Now, this could be him bluffing and posturing and making it seem as if, you know, he is never going to back down, but perhaps he has an intent to back down at a certain point. I'm not sure. Perhaps he's trying to break the uh, morale of the Ukrainian resistance. Either way, you know, after having a 90-minute conversation with him and you're convinced the worst is yet to come, that's pretty chilling. And I believe Emmanuel Macron when he says this. It's good that he does have this direct line of communication. I'm glad that ongoing diplomatic talks are taking place, but it doesn't seem like this is going to change the trajectory. It seems like Vladimir Putin is hell-bent on taking over Ukraine entirely, no matter the cost, in terms of uh, human life or uh, money. So it's, it's horrifying when you see a bloodthirsty leader who just doesn't care about the loss of human life, but this is where we're at. And, you know, the best that I could do is update you on the situation. But this story definitely is a a little bit depressing to hear because after damaging his own economy, you would think that there'd there'd be at least some reservations. Perhaps he won't express it, but you think that there'd be some reservations. But it seems as if the takeaway from Macron is that he doesn't believe that Putin is going to back down. When Putin says he's not backing down, Macron believes him. And i'm inclined to believe what macron is saying here based on his phone call. so it's it's horrifying but it's uh something that we have to pace ourselves for because this is likely going to be a long drawn out battle and maybe that's not what putin initially planned for but regardless he isn't going to leave anytime soon at least based on where he's at right now so yeah I'm not necessarily sure how confident I am that the January 6th Select Committee is going to bring about any justice and actually hold Donald Trump accountable for trying to subvert democracy in the United States in 2020. But what I do know is that some of the revelations have been pretty shocking. The lengths that Donald Trump was willing to go to to end democracy in the United States is absolutely startling. But a new revelation is uh, uh, very damaging to Donald Trump, at least from the standpoint of his reputation. Will this lead to consequences legally? Who knows? Nevertheless, this is really interesting. So Kyle Cheney and Nicholas Wu of Politico report the January 6th Select Committee says its evidence has shown that then-President Donald Trump and his campaign tried to illegally obstruct Congress's counting of electoral votes and engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. In a major release of its findings filed in federal court late Wednesday, the committee suggested that its evidence supported findings that Trump himself violated multiple laws by attempting to prevent Congress from certifying his defeat characterizing excerpts of nearly a dozen depositions from top aides to Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence the committee described a president who had been informed repeatedly that he had lost the election and that his claims of fraud were unfounded only to reject them and continue to mislead the American public he then pushed top advisors to continue strategizing ways to overturn the election results the committee suggests Trump and some of his allies may have committed three distinct crimes obstruction of an official proceeding in this case Congress's January 6 session to count electoral votes defrauding the United States by interfering in the election certification and spreading false information about the results, and a violation of the District of Columbia's common fraud law." So we know that he tried to steal the election, but the question is, did he break any laws? Did he actually commit a crime? And what the January 6th Select Committee is saying is, yes, we have evidence that he did indeed commit a crime. However. Having evidence that he committed a crime doesn't necessarily mean that they can definitively prove this in the court of law. So that's really the question. And the article kind of answers that question. Yeah, they can potentially prove this, but it's still a little bit tricky when it comes to the president of the United States. They go on to add to prove Trump committed felony obstruction, investigators would have to show he corruptly intended to impede an official proceeding. And the committee says his work with Eastman to pressure Pence to take illegal acts could satisfy this requirement, particularly as Trump continued to spread claims of fraud that his own allies said were unfounded. Determining whether Trump violated criminal law on January 6th is a complex undertaking, though the panel's findings may drive up pressure on the Justice Department to reveal its own thinking on the matter have charged hundreds of Trump supporters who breached the Capitol with seeking to obstruct Congress's efforts to count electoral votes, but applying that law to the former president presents a trickier calculus. The panel says the evidence supports an inference that Trump knew he had lost the election. Miller described a blunt conversation with Trump in which campaign aides told him he had lost, but the president nevertheless sought to use the vice president to manipulate the results in his favor. So that last paragraph uh, doesn't give me much hope. So the panel says that the evidence infers that Trump knew, but explicitly, did he state that he knew he didn't win and wanted to go ahead with trying to overturn the election anyway? I mean, what this is ultimately seemingly going to come down to is, was Trump dumb enough to actually believe his own lies, or did he know that he lost but corruptly tried to overturn the election anyway? That's... I think the ultimate legal question, the ultimate thing that will need to be proven here was their corrupt intent, apparently. I mean, I I could be misinterpreting this because I'm no legal expert, but the way that I read this is I don't have much hope because it's Donald Trump. People in power they get away with things like this. And perhaps it'll be different this time, but uh, it would be really important if Trump were held accountable legally, because guess what? When you pose a threat to democracy directly like that, you shouldn't be allowed to run for office. So I hope that they can prove that he did corruptly try to obstruct the election process because he needs to be barred from ever running from public office again imagine if you were to run again and win does anyone actually believe that trump would rel- relinquish power who knows i mean we've seen time and again the way that authoritarian strongmen have undermined democracy erdogan in turkey putin in russia so it's not absurd to think that donald trump if he's able to obtain power again would turn us into in a liberal regime perhaps not full-blown authoritarian but certainly if he gets power He knows he's not going to let that go this time. And that's really worrying. So they have to do everything in their power to make this case, to prove that he corruptly did try to obstruct the election, because if he's able to run again legally, then we all know that his victory could mean the death of democracy in the United States. And some people might listen to that and say that I'm being hyperbolic. But how how could you say that when we've seen everything that he's done? Zero evidence. There's zero evidence that the election was stolen. But yet. He doesn't care. He tried to pressure Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, to find votes for him. So, if he already did that, imagine what he would do if he got power again. I mean, he joked about running for multiple terms over the two that is constitutionally uh, that he's constitutionally limited to when he was in power. So, I have no idea what he's going to do. But I do know that I don't want to find out. I don't want to see what happens if Trump gets power again. Who knows? Maybe he, you know, would win and then he'd step down after that last term that he's able to serve, constitutionally speaking. But we've already seen how damaging he has been to democracy in the United States. The way that he single-handedly got millions of Americans to believe that democracy was stolen in the United States, I mean, I just, I just think he's such a threat to democracy. You have to do everything in your power to stop this, to stop him. Because once you kill democracy, it's going to be very hard to get it back, right? To bring it back to life, I should say. So uh, I don't know if anything is going to come out of this, right? But if we can't bar someone from running for public office ever again after doing what Trump did, that American institutions are just too weak to protect democracy long term. It's just only a matter of time until a different authoritarian strong man comes along who's perhaps a little bit more savvy, a little bit more strategic than Donald Trump, less stupid than Donald Trump, who actually does kill democracy once and for all. So either way, we need reform. We need to do everything in our power to protect democracy. And a really good start is stopping Donald Trump from ever running for public office again. Jon Stewart has been one of the few and one of the first, I believe, in mainstream media to actually call out Tucker Carlson and the threat that he poses to America. In fact, back in 2004 — we've played the clip on this show, I'll play it again in this segment — he actually confronted Tucker Carlson to his face and called him a dishonest hack. But time has passed, and Tucker Carlson's influence has grown exponentially. And now, the threat that Tucker Carlson poses to America is far greater than the threat that he posed while he was working at CNN, and it was just the standard Republican Party talking head. So now, Tucker Carlson, he doesn't just feed conservative, standard right-wing talking points about trickle-down economics. He has gotten them to accept white supremacist propaganda, the Great Replacement Theory, this idea that immigrants are making America dirty— and what he's doing is incredibly dangerous because he is contributing, perhaps more so than anyone else, to the far-right radicalization of conservatives in the United States. So Jon Stewart kind of knew the danger that Tucker Carlson posed, and he was asked again in an interview with Kara Swisher, uh, hosted uh, who hosts a New York Times podcast, uh, what are your thoughts on Tucker Carlson today. Now, he was asked specifically about Tucker Carlson's flip-flop on Vladimir Putin over the course of the last couple of weeks, and I don't really care about that. What I want to get to is the broader critique of Tucker Carlson, because what Jon Stewart says here is absolutely accurate. As Dominic Mastrangelo of The Hill writes, comedian Jon Stewart tore into Fox News host Tucker Carlson when asked about recent comments the host made about Russian President Vladimir Putin ahead of Russia's attack on Ukraine. When you deal with such a dishonest propagandist and that's what he is, there's nothing you can take out of context because none of it is real, Stewart said, of Carlson during an appearance this week on New York Times reporter Kara Swisher's podcast. He's admitted when he's cornered, he lies. It's all a game and a performance. I mean, honestly, I have no idea what the fuck that guy believes, truly. On Swisher's podcast, Stewart accused Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of the Fox News Corporation, which owns Fox News and employs Carlson, of trying to destroy the fabric of this country. I don't know if it's ideological or he just thinks this is where the money is, but how somebody can, in good conscience put a shithead like that on television every night to say those types of things, that's where the responsibility lies, in my mind, Stewart said." So first and foremost, he refers to what Tucker Carlson does as theater. And that's accurate. And we'll look at the clip from Crossfire and he says the same thing, that what Tucker Carlson and Paul Begala was doing at that time was nothing more than political theater and it was hurting the country. But what Jon Stewart is saying here is, you know, Tucker Carlson, he's going to say what gets him the ratings. Who knows if he truly believes the white supremacist propaganda that he disseminates. But really, what you have to blame are the people who put him on the air, the people who employ him. I mean, at some point... You have to look at Rupert Murdoch and this media company and ask, what is their goal for the country? What's the long-term goal to just disrupt the country? I mean, I feel like, to me as a leftist at least, perhaps my perspective skews my opinion on this, but it feels like the right has unquestionably won. You defeated the left. You defeated Democrats. You got what you wanted. We live in a late-stage capitalist hellscape. Neoliberalism has overtaken the country. We've commodified everything, including elections. So what more do you want? You've won politically and economically. So what now? Why are you still doing this? Do you just want the country to fall apart? Do you want to see division? Are you just trying to make more money, enhance profits? What's the end game here for these far-right outlets? And that's that's really hard to um, discern. Uh, but regardless, unquestionably, What's happening is absolutely damaging. Now, uh, I do want to go to that clip from uh, Crossfire from 2004. This is relatively lengthy. And again, I've played this on the program before, so feel free to tune out. It's worth watching again, though. The premise of the show is you have a Republican and a Democrat and they debate Various topics, but as you're going to see, Jon Stewart points out that this isn't actually debated as political theater. You have Paul Begala, a Democratic Party hack, versus Tucker Carlson, a Republican Party talking head and hack, and this isn't really them actually debating ideas in a substantive way. They're just representing their respective party's donors. So, Jon Stewart, you know, he, he called that out. He called them hacks. He called Tucker Carlson a hack to his face, and one thing that I want you to keep in mind as you watch this clip from 2004 is that a lot of the criticism that Jon Stewart had of Tucker Carlson back then is still applicable now. Take a look.
6: Your
3: partisan, um, what do you call it? Hacks. <laughs> wait, John, wait. Like, let, me, so let me tell you something valuable that I think we do that I'd like to see you Something do, valuable? You do. Yeah, no. Well, yeah. It's it's I nice would like when, to I would when like politicians to hear it. When, and I'll tell you, when politicians come on. Yeah it's nice to get them to try and answer the question and uh-huh. in order to do that we try to ask them pointed questions i want to contrast our questions with some questions you asked John Kerry, recently, if, if you
6: want to, if you want to compare your show to a comedy show, you're more than no, 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 welcome but to.
3: No, no, here's here's the point. If, Kerry if doesn't have. If that's your goal, no, it's not. I would name for us. I aim for. Here's, aim for here's the problem. That's Kerry a very will, good show. Kerry won't come on this show. He will come on your show. Let me suggest right. why he wants. To well, on we have show. civilized discourse. Well, here here here's here's an example of the civilized discourse. Here are three of the questions you asked John. Kerry. Yeah. You have a chance to interview the Democratic nominee. You ask him mm-hmm. questions such as, "Quote, how are you holding up?" Is it hard not to take the attacks personally? Yeah. Have you ever flip-flopped, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Didn't you feel like you got the chance to interview the guy? Why not ask him a real question instead of just suck up to him?
6: Yeah. How are you holding up is a uh, is a real suck up and. Uh, uh I actually was giving him a hot stone massage. As, <laughs> it sounded that way <laughs> as we were doing it. Did. You know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about I felt my responsibility to the. You know, I, I didn't realize that, and maybe this explains quite a bit. You know, the is that of the, the news organizations look to Comedy Central for their cues on integrity. It's so, <laughs> so right. um, no, no, what, what I would suggest is, when you talk about you're holding politicians' feet to the fire, I think that's disingenuous. I think you're how are you holding up? I mean, come on! You no, no, that. no, no, no! I don't. But my come my on. role isn't. I don't well, you think you can ask him a real question,
3: don't you think? Instead of saying, you know, I don't think I have. Against to. Against By the 100%. way,
6: I I also asked him, you know, where you am, Cambodia, but I didn't really care, because <laughs> I don't care because I think <laughs> I it's tell. stupid. Well, but, but my my point is this:
0: mm-hmm.
6: if your idea of uh, confronting me is that I don't ask hard hitting enough news questions. We're in bad shape, fellas. We're here
3: to love you, not confront you. No, I no, no. But but what, what I'm saying is nice.
6: is this: I, I'm not. I'm here to, to confront you because we need help from the media, and they're hurting us. And it's now, the I, idea if, is if the if they got, like, right. Let me get this straight. If the indictment yeah. is. Uh, if the indictment is, and I have seen you say this, that yeah. uh, crossfire reduces everything, as I said in the intro, to right. left, right, black, white. Yes. Well, it's because see, we're a debate show. It's like single-wedged. No, no, Wonder no, Channel, no, no. That'd be great. I would love for 30 to see a debate show, in a 24-hour day where we have each side on as best. No, no, we can no, get no, no. That would be great. And have to, them fight it out. To do a debate would be great, but that's like saying pro wrestling is uh, John, a, a show John, about athletic John, I'm competition. Sorry.
3: i I think you're a good comedian. I think your lectures are boring. Let me ask you. Let me yeah. ask you a question on the news.
6: Now this right. is theater. I mean, it's it's it obvious. No, no.
3: it How old are you? Thirty-five. And
6: you wear a bow tie. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so, I do. so, this is. No, no. I know. I know. So you're right. No, no. Let me just go. Now, come on. And come listen, on. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you're right. not you're not a smart guy because those are not easy to tie. But the you're thing difficult. is that this you're doing theater. When you should be doing debate, which would be great, well, you do deb- no, so it's not honest. What you do it's is honest. What you do is partisan hackery. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you why I, I know You have on
3: your show, and you sniff his throne, and you're accusing us of partisan hackery? Absolutely. You're You've a- got to be kidding, man. You're on CNN. You say- My, the
6: show that leads into me is. Puppets making crank phone calls. What
3: is wrong with you? Well, I'm just saying there's no reason for you, when you have this marvelous opportunity, not to be the guy's butt boy, to go ahead and be his butt boy. Yes, that no, is
6: embarrassing. I was absolutely his butt boy. I was so far. You would not believe what he ate two weeks ago. You know, the interesting thing that I have is you have a responsibility to the public discourse, and you, you failed miserably. School, I think you need to go to one. The the thing that I want to say is. When you have people on for just knee-jerk, reactionary talk. Wait, I thought you were going to be funny. Come on. Be funny. No, no I'm not going to be your monkey. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I watch your show every day, and it kills me. I can tell you love It's it. so, oh, it's so painful to watch. Um, you know, because we need what you do this is such a great opportunity you have here to actually get politicians off of their marketing and strategy yeah it's someone who watches your show and cannot take it anymore i just can't what's it like to have dinner with you it must be excruciating. excruciating
0: i've seen this clip countless times and it still is entertaining and important so what's interesting is that shortly after john stewart made that appearance guess what happened CNN decided to cancel Crossfire. Now, you can't necessarily say with certainty that they canceled Crossfire because of Jon Stewart there and that appearance was just so devastating, but I've got to say, then-CNN President Jonathan Klein said that he actually agreed with Stewart's criticisms of the media at that time. And, I mean, the media, I feel like, has only gotten worse since then. So, you know, you see no actual structural changes made at CNN because they're still doing the same exact thing, the same political and partisan hackery. Um, But everything that Jon Stewart said, there was absolutely on the money. And that media landscape, it's gotten worse since then, don't you think? Now we've seen more radical outlets pop up. OAN, Newsmax. And I don't know what specifically is driving hyperpolarization, but I know for a fact this type of media, it's responsible for the lion's share, I think, of hyperpolarization polarization in the United States, you know, not taking into consideration uh, the lack of policies that are needed to address crises in this country. But Tucker Carlson is a dangerous propagandist because he's so effective. I mean, he's priming Americans. He's been priming Americans for years to subconsciously and sometimes explicitly accept white supremacist talking points. And he's radicalizing the right. And as the right becomes more and more radicalized because of media figures like him, the country becomes further destabilized. You pave the way for extremists like Donald Trump to pop up. Now I do believe that we can minimize the level of extremism, perhaps make people less susceptible to radicalization if we address some economic needs. But you know, you're not just going to get racism to go away if we have Medicare for All or socialism, so I'm not trying to make a class reductionist point. But what I am saying is that the damage that Tucker Carlson is doing is long-term. It's irreparable. I think that the way that he gets people to think about issues as it's them against us, they're against us, it's whites versus everyone else. And he may not say that explicitly all the time, but it's he's priming you to think in this way. Like, what he's doing there Irreparable harm, irreparable harm, brainwashing an entire generation. Um, and he's he, he knows the way to market himself as this populist. You know, he knows how to sell it. And that's so dangerous. So, you know, it's nice to see Jon Stewart call him out. Jon Stewart canceled, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson before. Uh, maybe he'll be able to do it again, but I doubt that because he brings in the ratings. And because he's so successful, Fox News is not going to let him go. But the damage that he is doing is just truly uh, immeasurable. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos
1: on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. you get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.